In the name of Jesus, amen. Today we consider Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And the reason Jesus says this parable is because it is in response to something that Peter had just said uh, earlier, if you turn back to chapter 19 at the very uh, end there. And what Peter says is this, as Jesus is talking about those who go into the kingdom of heaven and people who have uh, uh, given up uh, things for the sake of the kingdom. Peter then says these words, he says, look, we, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Um, In other words, Peter's saying, look, we've given up a lot of things. We've given up our jobs, our money, our careers, our boats, our nets, our dreams, uh, our sinful indulgences our wayward life, all of those sort of things. We've done so much more than other people. And if they get eternal life, then what will we get then? If we're all going to end up getting the same thing, I mean, we've given up so much more. So then what is that? And that is then what prompts Jesus to say this parable of Matthew chapter 20. Uh, The parable is very simple. It uh, it, It is very popular. It is really well known. He says this, it's a, just to, to summarize the parable, <clears throat> a master hires a, uh, certain men to work in his vineyard, and he hires them at all different times. Uh, some work more than others, some he hired at the very beginning of the day, so they worked 12 hours, and then he goes back out, and some worked uh, 11, 9 hours, 5 hours, uh, all the way down to the very close of the day. Some were brought in at the very last hour, and then... Uh, work for that final hour. And then when it comes time to pay them, he starts with the last first and he gives them all a denarius, which is a full day's wage, even the ones who only worked one hour. And, and then the parable ends like this. It says, <clears throat> when those who worked 12 hours saw that they, uh, that they got paid the same as those who worked only one hour, The text says, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the master replied to to, to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? So take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Now, I don't know why the translators of the ESV, the version of the Bible that we use here, and throughout the Synod, the English Standard Version. I don't know why they translated this as, do you begrudge my generosity? Uh, Maybe they thought that the original Greek here needed some explaining or an interpretation, and so they uh, did that themselves. But what the text literally says, actually says word for word, is the master responds and he says, it doesn't say, uh, do you begrudge my generosity? He says, is your eye evil because I'm good? very clearly and plainly that way. And I think that 
those words get to the heart of the matter here. Uh, the master is good, and their eyes are evil. He's doing something good, and they look at him, him with evil eyes, with evil intention in their heart. Their eyes are filled with envy and malice, all because the master is being good. And this is the point of the parable. Uh, the, the, the first part of the parable is about the grace of God, and that is beautiful, and it is good, and I will talk about that. But it's not the only point of the text. I, I would even say it's not even the main point of the text. The point of the parable isn't simply to teach us what the grace of God looks like. It's to teach us what the grace of God looks like in the eyes of the self-righteous. This is what the grace and mercy and love of God look like to proud and sanctimonious people. That's what this parable is doing. People who react this way are those who appear outwardly to live a Christian life, but inwardly, they don't really love Jesus. They don't really love the gospel. This, this is something Christians in every single generation need to hear, regardless of the times and how much they change. This, there's one thing that is not changing, and it is this. It's the human heart. The sin of self-righteousness is always lurking in our hearts. It's seeking somebody to devour. In, in the very earliest days of the church, uh, the Jewish Christians, the Jews who converted to Christianity, uh, they despised the Gentiles who converted to Christianity. And there was animosity in the churches, division in the churches because of the two. Uh, because these were the new guys, and they didn't have to go through as much. And yet, in the churches, they were equal there in the church. The Gentiles didn't uh, grow up following uh, the ceremonial laws. They didn't have to keep the observance of all these sort of fasts and the dietary laws. Uh, they didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to observe all of these sorts of things. And now, Christ has done away with all these ceremonial laws. He has fulfilled them in his very flesh, in his life, and in his death. And the Gentiles didn't have to observe them. And when God does something so gracious like this, then the Jewish, uh, the Jewish Christians were angry with the Gentiles because of it. They were upset with God over this. And they thought, look, well, this is unfair. This is wrong. When God fulfilled the law and showed his mercy and grace upon these people, they became angry with God. Now, the, the reality is that we need to hear this rebuke even today, still. If you've ever talked to unbelievers, they find the idea of salvation to be completely and entirely absurd. They scoff at it. Uh, you've probably heard this before. They'll say something like, look, so you're saying Hitler converts on his deathbed. He believes in Jesus. And then he goes to heaven after all of the evil stuff he did. But if I don't, if I just keep living my life like normal, not doing anything really, really wrong, not doing anything really good, but I'm just living a normal life, but I don't repent and I don't uh, have Christ... I don't believe the gospel, then I'm going to hell. To which we would say, yes, that's right. Just as we saw that happen with David and Peter and Paul and the thief who was crucified next to Christ, whose life of sin was forgiven there in a moment. 
This attitude happens to this, this, this sinful attitude, the self-righteous attitude comes out even in congregations uh, among churchgoers. Uh, we see people who lived horrible, shameful lives converting and then becoming Christians. And so often those who do so are met with skepticism and they're looked down upon. We meet people who we find out have lived disgraceful lives, who have done uh, unholy things before they were Christians. And even after they've repented, they're treated like they're second-class Christians in the church. Uh, to clarify, I'm not talking about people who brag and boast about their sins and their scandals that they committed while they were Christians, and they glorify their sins and then make them a platform to share the gospel and turn sins into virtues. I'm not talking about that. People who do that need to be rebuked and told to be quiet and not to talk anymore. I'm talking about people who, in the blindness of their sin and unbelief, they held wicked opinions, they did evil and awful things, stupid things, they said things, uh, did all sorts of things that they can't undo. They're deeply ashamed of it, and they repent of it. And oftentimes when we hear what they once said or did in blindness in their life, we, we just take a step back and we, we keep our distance from them. Uh, something similar happens in individual congregations. I can't tell you how many churches talk about how they need to grow the church and bring in more people. And then when that happens, they complain about the kind of people who are coming in. That they look different, and they talk differently, and that they're darker or lighter or whatever it might be. Uh, one that hits close to home for us is that congregations, many of them go through building projects at some point uh, in their existence. Uh, they'll go through some program or uh, capital campaign, something like this. And then the members there during that time, they give all they have. They struggle just to make ends meet, to make the thing work. And then some of them will then get upset that they don't have a position of seniority or authority over the newcomers. Who then just walk in and reap the benefits without any of the work. Without doing anything, contributing nothing, not one penny to the thing. We've seen churches impose things like children's church, uh, where they remove all the kids from the sanctuary, which I think is very bad, uh, just so that older people can worship in quiet and peace, and they don't have to deal with kids crying or fussing, things like that. Like, they're, they're not um, to be in the sanctuary because of that. Uh, we see people walk in off the streets on Christmas and Easter once a year who have nothing to do with the church. They show up like nothing. They sit in the pew. And God treats them the same. He preaches, and what goes into their ears is the same holy gospel that's going into your ears. And he does this to you, too, for those who have been here for decades, even. And while this isn't the point of the parable, this isn't, I'm, I'm getting off track here, but I think we can get this way when we see God being so gracious and merciful to unbelievers. Um, when God is good to them, we look at him with an evil eye. We see how much patience and long-suffering God has, even for wicked and evil people, and then it frustrates us. While they sin and they do filthy things, God continues to bless them and give them things 
house and home, and food and drink and clothing and shoes, all they need for this body and life, and sometimes even more than we have. We see how families, some families never go to church and they're wealthy and healthy and successful and they have all these great things. And we go to church week after week and we struggle to make ends meet. We have a hard time looking out into the world and wondering why God has not burned everything down to ashes yet. If God is in control, then why does he run things like this? Why is he... Uh, waiting so long? Why, does he, why doesn't he end everything? And we look at this and we say, God is entirely unfair here. I can go on and on listing these sort of things, but the reality is that every single one of us, every single one of us here today, is guilty of envying God's grace upon other people at some point. Every single one of us has thought at some point that God is just being a little too kind to this person. He's just being a little too gracious and patient and merciful with these sort of people. And we've all had the thoughts like this. If they get those things, then I should certainly get more. Certainly I have something else coming to me. And when we don't, we look at God angrily with an evil eye. We grumble and complain about what he does with what's his. Now, do you, do you know what all of this proves? All of this proves only that you don't really love the grace of God as much as you think you do. It proves that you have self-righteousness coursing through your veins. You think very highly of yourself. You don't really know or claim the grace of God upon yourself. You, you don't know you're standing before God and you don't know how gracious the Lord has been to you and must continue to be you. Deep down inside, deep, deep down inside, you have stained within your soul this idea that you think that your good works and your life and your conduct have some worth before the face of God when it comes to your salvation. Deep down, you think that. That is, that is our natural condition. This is the problem. Repent. Stop looking at yourself with rose-colored glasses and stop looking at God with an evil eye. Open your eyes and see how things really, truly are. God is good. And that means he is good not only to us, but also to other people as well. God is good to the great and the small, and he loves the good, and he loves even his enemies. And rather than looking at God with evil eyes, this should cause us to look at him with eyes filled with love and with hope because the way that he treats them is the way that he continues to treat us. So that, that's the question. Why is it? Why is it that God treats the last and the least just like the first and the greatest? It's because God actually doesn't consider you according to your sins. And it's because God doesn't, actually doesn't consider you according to your good works either. He considers you only according to the righteousness of his dear son, Christ, and everything he did for you. He considers you according to the blood that he spilled from his flesh with his wounds, 
He destroyed your sins and erased from all existence your bitterness and your envy, all of your grumbling, all of your self-righteousness and idleness. He forgave all of your sins, all of you. And when he closed his eyes in death, that is when he opened to you the gates of heaven forever. If one day you see your enemies show up in church, those who once did shameful things sit next to you in church, don't get angry. Rejoice. Rejoice that God is so gracious and kind to those who don't deserve it. He shows the same amount of grace and favor to you. Look, I'll, I'll just be honest here. The day is coming, and maybe it, it, it already has come. Maybe it is today. Maybe it's even now. But the day is coming when you will not feel, not that others don't belong here, but like you don't belong here. That day is coming. The day is coming when you will feel like you have not contributed as much as everyone else. Like you've done nothing worthwhile or meaningful. In fact, the day is coming that when you you will show up to this church with nothing but empty hands stained with sin, a guilty conscience, and absolutely nothing to offer or give. You'll have only the feeling of your shame and your guilt and your memory of sins. And when that happens, when that happens, you come back to his church And you will see your dear Lord come to you and treat you as if you were always here. As if you were here from the beginning. As if there was never a moment you lived without him. And when that day comes, when you don't feel worthy to be in this church or hear the gospel because of what you've done, that's only because you're remembering sins that God has already forgotten remembering sins which God has already forgiven and forgotten through his holy and precious blood. So when you see others come into this church, rejoice that God has given them everything in the blood of Christ. And when you see a dear Christian think that he's lesser or least or insignificant because he hasn't given much or contributed much to the kingdom of heaven, Remind him that God has already given him everything and everything he's given you. Both the first and the last, the great and the least, they stand together in the grace and mercy of God for you. Listen to the words of the hymn we just sang. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Good works cannot avert our doom. They help and save us never. Faith looks to Jesus Christ alone who did for all the world atone. He is our one redeemer. Yet as the law must be fulfilled or we must die despairing, Christ came and has God's anger stilled, our human nature sharing. He has for us the law obeyed and thus the Father's vengeance stayed, which over us impended. Let me not doubt, but truly see your word cannot be broken. Your call rings out, come unto me. No falsehood you have spoken. Baptized into your precious name, my faith cannot be put to shame. And I shall perish never. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.